Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Chatting on Bell Street, your window into the world of commercial real estate. I'm your co-host, Tony Miranda, and with me as always, CEO of Bell Street Commercial, Mr. Brian Bell. Brian, how are we doing today? Fantastic, Tony. Great, great, great. We, each and every week, Chatting on Bell Street brings you the up-to-minute insights on the commercial real estate space. Now, without further delay, let's dive into what's shaping the commercial real estate landscape this week. This week's topic, we're going to be diving deep into the current state of commercial real estate financing. In a recent article from Forbes magazine by Zane Jaffer titled Real Estate Financing Gets Complicated, What This Means for Industry Leaders, it paints a vivid picture of the complexities in real estate financing, particularly pointing out the challenges faced by commercial office spaces due to the rise of remote work, which we discussed last week. With Bell Street being a key player in the commercial real estate sector, how do you interpret these insights, Brian? You know, <clears throat> with office space, I think, you know, I, I definitely see what he's saying. Like, you know, I read the whole article and one, one section was like, you know, there's a lot of dated space out there in the market that was, you know, if, you, if we really take a step back real quick and we just look at it from a technology standpoint, you know, computers used to be computers used to be the size of a room and, you know, and everyone had their own office or there was cubicles normally spread out. So the whole framework of the evolution of office has been changing over the past 20 years with technology. And now we have remote work. We have Zoom. We have Google Chat. Uh, we have Teams Meetup. And, you know, we're, we're going kind of like what we covered last week. We're going into this hybrid model of office. And so. I think there's a lot of office buildings that should be demoed that are really old and dated that you can tell they were built in the sixties. And you know, those, if they're larger assets, then yeah, maybe there should be some, some process where we're maybe looking and, and get creative and figure out, all right, is the best move to convert it into multifamily or is it better to, you know, just demo a floor plate and try to bring in some, you know, revitalize that asset. I'm glad you touched yeah. on. I'm glad you touched on that because uh, there's there is actually there was a project here in the Denver market to where they took an old office building and they converted it into multifamily space. And I spoke uh, I spoke with uh, someone on the development team and they said the biggest challenge and you touched on this just now that it was turning the footprint into something that could hold, you know, multifamily space, you know, you're gonna mm -hmm. have you're gonna have more water, you're gonna have more electricity. Typically, these office spaces, they only have that daytime running, but now you're gonna have this 24 hours. It's kind of like touched on what you're saying. So there are instances where they are doing that. Yeah. And you know, when you do these conversions, I mean, you got to think about, all right, Typically restrooms are in the center of the building, wherever the elevator shafts are. And now we're, well, now we got to figure out like, all right, now we're going to add plumbing throughout the whole floor plate instead of just right around where the restrooms are over all the, um, all over pretty much all over the floors. And, and then we also got to think about like, you know, individually metering everything and then also adding balconies, more windows. So people don't feel like they're shut-ins. I mean, it's a big process, really. And the biggest thing that we're seeing is the way it's working, I think, in most markets is when the city gets involved and they're providing some sort of incentive that is beneficial for the investor to go in and make this big switch. Because the price per square foot equilibrium point where the, the buy, buy price, people still want a premium for their office building. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've really came... 
I don't think we've really hit a point where it's come down to a price that is profitable for the investors to go in and take on a project to overhaul some of these assets. Now, some markets we're seeing the city jump in and provide incentives that are helping some of the investors take some of these assets and convert them and get creative with their use. And, you know, but, but going back to office, I, you know, I think office is always going to be around and mm. I'm, I'm very bullish on office. I, I love the product type. I think, you know, I think there's still, you know, we're actually seeing more people And if you notice during COVID, all the tech companies went remote. Right. And now we, we saw a big shift about 18 months ago where all the big four or five firms were like, all right, no, everyone's coming back to the office. Because there's a lack of creativeness, especially within tech, especially if you're doing hardware design, mm-hmm. where you need somebody right next to you to sit there and run ideas. It's hard to do something with your dog next to you, with your kids next to you, trying to get creative. Because <laughs> you know, if, if I'm distracted, it takes me 20 minutes just to get refocused. Right. Um, so, I mean, I don't think Office is going anywhere. I think the news is kind of blowing it up like it, it is a issue in a lot. And but what the big t- thing is when you got a major Fortune 500 company and they're backing out of their lease, you know, they're like big ships. So when they see that you know remote work is not working, but maybe hybrid work is working. There's probably companies right now going, all right, well, all right, we got out of this lease, but what is going to work for us Right. on a flex flexibility standpoint? And how do you see that affecting the current state of uh, commercial real estate financing? You know, financing for office, you know, it's really, you know, what people, you know, funds and, uh, you know, groups that are, you know, banks that are financing these deals it's all based on what's popular. You know, it's so much easier to get money for multifamily or warehousing or whatever is popular during that that time. Now, some of these investment groups, oh, I'm not gonna touch office because it's not a thing to really mess with right now. Um, or the debt services is not available, or, the, or excuse me, the, the available financing is not there. Um, but, you know, I think the, the financing in the office space is, you know, is probably gonna be stigmatized for some time. And they're probably gonna, require a lot more, the LTV for that product type is going to be very, you know, limited for a little while. I mean, banks are going to really require probably even up to 50% um, down um, and 50% uh, cut, like LTV on those assets. Um, you know, other product types, you know, we're seeing that even on like retail assets where like someone will go to the bank, maybe they only have like 20 loans going on right now, <laughs> some of these small banks, but they're requiring the, the investor to put down 40% um, of the purchase price, and then they're only going to provide LTV of 60%. So it's just not office right now. Everyone's very, being very cautious uh, in this climate, which I understand, which is kind of, I know this isn't mentioned in the article, but one thing that we even read about the other week is like privatized financing right now, where mm-hmm. owners are owner carrying back. And, and also one thing we're seeing is even funds are going in and undercutting the market and still being aggressive in, in lending um, funds out. And we've been approached by even, you know, some groups like, all right, well, if you have a property owner that has debt, but they don't want any more money, but they just want to be refinanced, you know, we can cover whatever they have and, and get them out of that um, that pickle they're in. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, because we have the changing in work patterns coupled with the financial challenges, you know, such as rising interest rates, um, it's helping, it's actually reshaping the financial landscape. And this leads uh, to, like you were saying, alternative methods of financing. 
And one of the things that we're seeing here that's been on our radar for a while now is uh, seller financing. And you just touched on this. And Brian, for those unfamiliar, can you give like just a brief overview of seller financing and why it might be gaining ground with today's market? You know, as a commercial real estate uh, agent and, you know, and even training our guys in the various markets we work in here at Bell Street, and, and, and if you're a commercial real estate agent, listen to this, or if you're an investor, I mean, some investors are like, oh, I can't buy anything right now because the banks are not willing to, you know, you know, give me the funding needed. But we're running in the deals right and left where we educate our, our sellers that, hey, look, why don't you do an owner carry as long as you're in that first position. So, you know, you know, if they're trying to get you to do a second position loan and they're trying to go get bank money and then you're in second position, I, I would advise anyone to say no. Cause that, to me, that's a hope note, you know, unless it's like very minimal and they're willing to take on that additional risk because they're going to hope and pray they get paid because the bank's going to be in first position. <laughs> but I, you know, going to owner financing. So you have one thing we've been teaching our guys. And if, and if you're, if you're a real estate agent, you don't know about owner financing, I would definitely like lean into it and really try to educate your clients right now because that's really what we're seeing to get deals done is undercutting the market like because the, the problem with all this hyperinflation is everything else has gone up over the past few years but in my viewpoint rents haven't gone up enough you know everything's in a lease it's at a three percent increase when really everything should have been cpi going up six seven percent with the market so real estate prices can reflect that too so, I mean, when people are doing under carry, looking at like a five and a half, six percent return, maybe on like a, you know, on, on interest on like a, a deal that maybe ha that may be like a six and a half cap, and because right now, if you're if you're trying to pencil something in, and even in that article, it talks about all right, commercial real estate lending is, you know, on residential seven eight percent for someone with amazing credit, and then the same thing for even in commercial, depending on the asset class and what you're trying to finance, we're running into the same dilemma. But when you're able to undercut the market, maybe not even charge your origination costs and still be able to get the deal done. And now you're able to make interest on top of the, the asset value at the exit for the seller. And, and, and I think the buyers appreciate that too. And, and, and we're not seeing a decrease in pricing right now. It's really just a stag stagnant time for the financing. Well, it's intriguing because seller financing does offer that flexibility. For sellers, it can expedite the sale. Uh, for, for buyers, it does provide that alternative, especially if they're facing challenges securing traditional financing. Uh, but Brian, while it offers advantages, there are also some inherent risks and challenges with seller financing. From your perspective, and you kind of touched on this uh, in your previous response, what are some potential pitfalls for both buyers and sellers that we should that we should make them aware of? I think vetting the buyer is always important. You know, kind of understand their philosophy on why they're buying it. Second thing is, is also making sure that the buyer has enough down. You know, I mean, trying to collect 10% on a deal and doing under financing, I just, I just, I've, I've, I've never seen it really. I don't think that's enough skin in the game. I think really 20, 30%, maybe even 35% down is probably healthy. Because if the banks are asking for 40 or 45%, um, you know, uh, equity coverage on a, on a deal, then, then, you know, if you're offering 35, maybe 30% down, then that's, that's enough to be sufficient. Cause back in the day, like a few years ago, we were doing deals that with just 20% down, the banks were willing to give you a loan 
at a competitive rate and banks were throwing money at everybody. And, and now, now it's hard to even get a loan. They want to see you got cash reserves in the bank. You know, they want to make sure that you're, uh, you know, they're only going to give you so much coverage. They want you to hold so much equity in the, in the deal. And, and so that's the, that's what we're seeing. And the thing is like, I went back and I love reading because I've, I love reading about what happened in the 70s when we had that hyperinflationary market. And prices actually never went down. They actually went up every year. But the interest rates just kept going up. And our job as commercial real estate agents, and I think if you're an investor right now and you're kind of scratching your head, like, what am I going to do? And, you know, but I also still want to buy deals. I think the biggest thing you need to kind of think about is like, all right, can this deal pencil for me? And, and, and really what I, what I see people asking themselves, Tony, is like, all right, Am I better off just putting this money in a bond where I can yield a higher return, you know, right now in this market? Or am I better off buying this deal and being able to like, you know, cash flow and 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 is is it going to make sense for me? Well, like all strategies, it's about weighing the pros and cons and ensuring both parties are well informed and protected. Mm -hmm. The real estate world is complex and it evolves over time. Methods like seller financing provide alternatives that can suit specific situations. Considering the insights from the article that we're discussing, Jaffer's article, and the rise of seller financing, where do you see the future of commercial real estate financing headed? Are we in for a significant shift here in the near future? You know, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. I think the, the future of financing is, you know, right now it's all kind of, and I, and I kind of was talking with some of my, my, my staff probably about a year ago and I was like, man, we should open up a fund and just raise capitals and undercut the market and, and get creative with our lending structure. And then there's an article out last week about it. And so like, you know, when there's opportunity and there's pain in the market, people get creative to provide a solution. So I think no matter if the banks aren't going to be willing to, to lend, there's going to be other groups, privatized financing that can still get the deal done. So, you know, and our jobs as commercial real estate agents is to be able to have a pulse on the market and be able to make the, the transaction as seamless as possible for our sellers that want to make an exit, but maybe they don't know how, or maybe they've tried with another agent and they didn't, they, they, they didn't have a pulse on the market. So whatever it is like, or if you have a buyer and they're still wanting to make acquisitions during this time, you know, what is that climate going to look like for the next five to seven years for them? But, you know, I think everything's going to change. Really, I think we're probably going to be leaning still more into this privatized uh, financing market that we're in. I think we're going to see new products that come out that are going to be based from funds and other private uh, lending institutions that are not banks. Um, you know, and everything's going to be a little bit more creative for the next few years to come. But I, I think it's, it's going to be, there's going to be deals to be had, but I think Really, it's just going to be, there's not really a lot of risky assets out there right now. The reason offices really getting hit, Tony, is because when you have a whole floor plate, you got a few floor plates really being taken out and these companies are restructuring. And I mean, when you have a massive building, it takes sometimes 24 months to backfill a floor plate or maybe even a few years to find the right tenant for that fit for that company to go in there. And so... You know, those assets, yeah, no, I think they're probably going to be hit the hardest, especially if they already was, was going thinking about remote work when they were paying rent for a year and a half during COVID, and now they got out of their lease, and now we're just seeing the repercussions of that. Right. Well, the dynamics of real estate are ever-changing, and it's essential to stay informed. That's why here at Chattagons Bell Street, we try to bring you that up-to-date insight. 
And um, you also need to be open to new strategies. Thank you, Brian, for your expertise and insights. And to our listeners, we definitely recommend the Zane Jaffer's detailed article in Forbes to get a comprehensive understanding. And as always, to stay informed and keep the dialogue going. But we're going to shift gears into our next segment. We're going to chat about uh, this week's blog on BellStreet.com. And uh, this week, we are going to be talking about choosing the right commercial real estate product type. This comprehensive guide on our on bellstreet.com gives uh, gives us is aimed to assist uh, aimed to assisting commercial real estate advisors in guiding their clients to make well informed decisions. Brian, the blog begins by drawing a parallel between selecting the optimal commercial real estate product type and choosing the right tool for the job. How important is it for advisors to understand the intricacies of these product types to ensure their client success? You know, there's two different sides to this. You know, one is whenever you're picking a product type for you to sell, you need to understand and go all in on that space. But also you need to make sure that there's enough volume within that product type for you to sell. And and I see it all the time where someone's like, I'm going to do self-storage, but maybe there's 20 self-storage buildings in that space. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, maybe you know all 20 guys that own the buildings, but you only do one a year. I mean, what's going to make, what's going to, as an agent, what's going to, you know, give you some market share for you to really have a business to chew on? And, and if you're in a smaller market, secondary market, and you have probably less than a million people, I would probably even try to be a journalist, maybe pick two things and really get to know it, maybe even three product types. Now, if you're in Denver or, you know, if you're an agent, I would probably focus, if you're doing office, maybe focus on industrial too. If you're doing retail, maybe also look at, um, you know, maybe doing office, you know, if you're doing multifamily, maybe look at also doing uh, 55 plus homes or maybe senior housing. Cause it's the same thing as housing for seniors or memory care. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing self storage, look at doing mo- mobile home parks and try to like partner up with those product types. And the reason I say that is cause each product type has its own life cycle. It's like, you know, like your cell phone. Whenever it debuts, you know, it's going to hit record sales. And then, you know, there's a new phone coming out two weeks later. And so, you know, same thing for market trends. You know, there's fluctuations in markets where they're in higher demand and then they kind of lose steam and then they kind of got to recreate themselves. You know, when they're in like uh, their own rediscovery. And that's what's going on with Office. Kind of like what we were talking about a minute ago. Office is in like a... I, I love that space in office because right now someone is recreating what office looks like. Is it going to be a lot more shared spaces in a lot of these larger footprints that's going to backfill that vacancy? Or are we going to do the multifamily conversions? Or are we going to convert it into high rise uh, retail shopping? I mean, depending on the market, it could go either way, either one of those options. But going back to the product type, it's the same thing. Like every product, like during COVID, industrial was really hot. Everyone wanted an industrial product. Now we're seeing it kind of cool off nationwide because everyone's back out there spending money. You know, right now we're at a record-breaking record for airline sales. We're back to, I think, I read an article the other day, it was 93%, Tony, of pre-pandemic travel. Can you believe that? (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. You know, I, I saw a picture the other day where... You know, there's some some places in Europe where people do selfies and there were hundreds of people <laughs> at one spot. Yeah, it kind of takes away from it, don't you think? Just yeah. like it's, it's the hot spot for the selfies. Yeah. Yeah. So but, but like that's we're back at like pre pandemic travel, which is great. 
you know, airlines are charging, you know, more for their uh, international travel now. And so less people are at home buying Amazon stuff or buying widgets. And so, you know, we're seeing that kind of stagnate, the stagnation in that industrial space. Now retail sales, retail is pretty hot right now. You know, but everything going on, everything being more expensive, people getting laid off right now, I think we probably have another year. I think retail right now is at the peak. Mm. I think retail right now for the next year is going to be great. And then we're probably going to see it cool off, kind of like how industrial and office did over we're the start, past. We're, we're, st- we're starting to see that nationwide trend because we're seeing a lot, of, particularly here in the Denver area, there's been a number of major national chains that are closing a lot of their stores with, a, uh, I think, Tuesday morning being one of them. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple other um, there's a couple other of those national ones that are closing down, mostly particularly in the Denver market. And me, me being in the retail space, I'm seeing a lot of the mom and pops mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. transact a lot more than these bigger national firms, kind of similar to the office yeah. and that dynamic. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that is like, if you're an agent and you're trying to pick a product type to focus on, take a step back, look at the macroeconomics of what's going on in your community. Cause it might be different if you're in like uh, New York or Atlanta or Miami, maybe your retail is pretty strong year round, but I, I but still like, even though there's still going to be some sort of like, you know, trend to it where it might pull back and get a little um, cold. So like, you know, I, cause when I was in Atlanta, um, doing a lot of brokerage, I mostly saw, I'll be like, okay, right now is the wave of retail. And I would get some strip centers and I would get to know some people and I would sell them. Same thing for office, industrial and self-storage. Like everything has this wave there. But then like in the times when it's not popular, if you wanted to focus on that product type, then that's the time for you to really get to know everybody. But now, you know, you're gonna have to work twice as hard to make money in that space. So, you know, you know, that's something you have to process. You know, if you're going to be dedicated just to office in an office centric market, then there's still deals going to be had. And what's going to happen is this is the biggest thing with commercial real estate agents, Tony, is like when something is no longer working, they blame the product type or blame the market. And then they try to shift to some other thing to see if it would work. Mm. And, and I think really the biggest thing is like if they're really if you spend a year and a half building an office database and you get to know everybody, but then office cools off. Don't quit before the miracle happens. <laughs> you know, I see it all the time. It's like, okay, I'm going to be a journalist. So I'm going to go to something else. Right. And Tony, you don't do that either. Okay. okay. <laughs> I've been on retail this whole time, man. I, I know. And it's almost like you got it. You got to, you got it. Like we got a guy in Atlanta, Joe, he loves the Browns. He's always going to be a Browns fan. When you pick something, you got to stay with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. Like when you put on a different hat, if you've been focusing on industrial and understand all the players and everything, but then you try to go to retail or go to mobile home parks, now you got to relearn something else. You got to get to know all the players. You got to get to know all the vendors. And, and that's the time for you to take a step back because what happens is there's a lot of those players within that product type that actually get out. So there's still the same amount of volume. You just have to work a little harder to get it. And, you know, but you have to understand when your market is in like a recessionary trend or like a, a slower period and that, that's the best time for you to really polish up that database get rid of uh, context and maybe you're uh, you know making a shift now you also asked me from the investor standpoint tony right mm-hmm. and from right. an investor standpoint i think investors should diversify i think depending on how big their portfolio is but i think they should still have like a little sample of you know 
less risky assets and then maybe a little bit more risky assets. Maybe like some senior housing where you maybe you get some government funding and maybe maybe you have some like just straight up nice apartment complexes and some markets. Same thing for retail, maybe some nicer retail, maybe some, you know, and then maybe like some like uh, middle middle tier market office product. So it depends. In a lot of groups, what I've all noticed is they'll get into, and, and this is something I've noticed, Tony, is like a lot of groups will get into commercial real estate through multifamily. And then they're like, you know what? I can get more of a yield on office product. And then they buy their first office product first office asset and maybe it's like 50,000 square feet. And they're like, wow, this cap rate is 7%, 7%. I've been paying like four and a half, five percent. I've been getting a four and a half percent return on the cap rate basis before even modeling it out. And, and now I'm going to get this office asset at seven. But what they're not understanding is that office costs more to turn tenants. And if they're not putting away that capital reserve and all that, so they have to relearn you know, that product type. And, and I see it all the time. Someone will go in, they'll have a thousand units, they'll buy an office building and then they'll buy another one. And then they realize, okay, I overpaid for them. Or I didn't put enough capital reserve aside to renovate those spaces into what tenants today want in the office space. And, and so, you know, so it's, you know, that's why you need a good commercial agent for one, you know, to kind of go back to that, just to kind of advise you, okay, no, maybe you need to model in this. You're like, okay, we're gonna have to renovate these spaces when these leases mm. um, mature. Right. And it's, and it's the same thing for all product types. And, and I think, you know, if you're, if you can get comfortable with it, and also there's some investors, a lot of investors, they, they when they invest in something, they wanna know what you're gonna buy. And if you're just like, oh, I'm just gonna buy whatever I want, they're probably not gonna invest with you, you know, so. Right. So. The blog goes into great detail of categorizing uh, the diversity of the landscape of commercial real estate, and it goes into the several product types. Like you said, we got office spaces and retail, which we talked about. We talked about industrial, multifamily, hospitality, and specialty products. Um, each category on the blog is elaborated with unique attributes and potential investment challenges, which you kind of discussed, and as well as the opportunities. Uh, among these, which product type do you believe poses the most potential with the current market dynamics? And you kind of briefly touched on that, but go into a little bit more detail on that. You know, with everything going on right now, I think anything affordable housing. I think affordable housing over the next like two years is going to be it. Because right now, you know, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, we could go into a recession or or there's like, a, you know, or everything's super expensive right now. And I don't think anything's gonna get any cheaper. You know, after looking at what was going on in the 1970s, like things aren't gonna get any cheaper. And I think if there's a way that we can provide affordable housing right now, whether or not if you're gonna build it or whether or not if you can, you know, um, invest in something that is gonna be affordable related, then I think that whether it's mobile home park or whether or not if it's a, a section eight apartment complex, or if you wanna, I think that's really where the shift is, where you know there's going to be like some good yields in that space. And I think when things get tough, that's what people look for. It's like, all right, well, what is affordable? Where is the government also assisting in this space? Because then it's less risk, risky whenever government's involved and they're helping cover that, that rent payment. A significant highlight of the blog is the power of diversification in commercial real estate advisory. It suggests that diversifying portfolios across various product types can mitigate those risks that you were discussing. 
and help with that stability. How does Bell Street advocate for diversification in its approach? And what are some success stories that you can share with that in context? Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is like sometimes I'll be working with someone that only buys retail and and but you know they're they seem like really retail heavy focused and 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 they're doing great in that space but then i'm like all right well and i'll put a different asset in front of them and then you know the thing is whenever you teach someone or you got to educate someone wherever they are in their their investment strategies and i think if you can kind of like say hey look this is or introduce them to someone else that's working for for them i think that's the biggest uh testimonials when you can say hey look i helped this other guy add this product type to his portfolio um and that really helps uh but i I think the biggest thing i would probably i think that's the biggest success story i took a guy that had like four or five community strip centers and i said hey look this is the value in office product this was now this was two years ago and i was like this is where i would go And, and now he runs a shared space model and he bought an office building and he like broke it up into different spaces. And he's getting, thir- I think he's getting like 45 a square in a market where it's typically $20, $20 a square. Um, and, and also he has these short-term tenants. And now in this market where everything's kind of gone hybrid, this was actually back in like, I think it was probably like back in 2019, it was a perfect timing for him to hop in this investment. And he called me like a few weeks ago. He said, like, thank you so much for advising me to get into this. This was perfect timing. And now I'm able to still increase my rents and got all these. Uh, and it was a community. It was like a suburban office, too. So, you know, just about making it clear what the associated risks are, most importantly, for the for the investor. And also showing that, you know, this can benefit you when you see retail kind of like pumping the brakes. But um, I mean, I think all product types in commercial real estate are incredible. The biggest thing I think we're seeing right now for all investors within real estate is, you know, could I just put this money in like a, a CD or or like a, a money market account or in a bond and get more a higher rate of return than what the commercial real estate market's yielding me? And and that I mean, that's a real question. We just had a deal the other day. It was a three million dollar deal, and the and the guy had some ten thirty one funds. He's like, well, I'm just gonna put it in the market because I can get more out of my investments without doing anything by putting it in the CD or putting this in this one particular bond than actually investing in, uh, in real estate and actually having to do the work and everything else. So that's what we're kind of running across now. And then also for people trying to raise capital, that's, that's what they're arguing against. They're arguing, it's like, all right, well, what's, if I don't have to do anything and I can still get the same yield, if I was going to invest in commercial real estate, why would I want to do all the work and on real estate? And so, Commercial real estate has a lot of shifts that we have to make in really increasing the rental rates. I think that going back to it is like if everything else got super expensive during COVID and we see like a 30% increase in everything, rents also need to reflect that. And I, you know, everyone I talk to that owns real estate, I'm telling them, hey, look, make that shift, raise those rents. It's going to put some strain on your, uh, your tenants. If they can't afford it, then you need, they need to go. You need to get some better tenants. Find some new tenants. Yeah, yeah. because that's where we are in the market. They, 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 it, it, we have to catch up. I mean, you do have are. you do have a lot of uh, property owners out there. They don't want to be the bad guy, and that's where we come in. I feel. Yeah, you know, and I think like whenever people don't want to be the bad guy, they're leaving money on the table. And you know, I owned a property management company in Charleston, South Carolina, and 
my my business partner Bob was uh, you know he was a great property manager and you know and 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 he actually took me on I was like when I got in it with him like he showed me some neat ways on how to effectively manage without or even how to do do cash for keys and all these different methods when you did have a struggling tenant how do you get them out without them destroying the unit <laughs> because normally you just got the security deposit and you know one thing that I always try to press on him was like hey look we got to get the rental rates up and he's like no no that tenant's working they've been there five years you know their lease says they're you know the rent's going to increase every year you know three percent i'm like no no we have to press on this mm -hmm. because that's what's going to keep the year-over-year evaluation of the model of an income approach on the multifamily asset because otherwise now you got a story where the bank's not going to finance it and you got to do under financing because someone's going to have to go in there and be the bad guy and right. restructure those tenants we so. try to, and we, we here at Bell Street, we try to do that, you know, and me personally, I advise my clients to bake that 3% into it, you know, it, to account for taxes, if they have the triple net leases mm -hmm. and, you know, rates do go up, uh, electric rates, insurance rates, you got to have that 3% baked in there. I think even more right now, I think even four, I think, I think it should be like CPI or four at the minimum. Um, in the in the current uh, climate, I mean, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, because the thing is, like, if you're, I mean, we're seeing it right now. You know, I mean, I was just meeting with someone last night for dinner. They own like eight homes, and the taxes in Colorado went up like thirty eight percent, thirty nine percent over the past two years. Now in this state, they go up. They do the reassessment every twenty four months mm -hmm. here in Colorado. Now a lot of states do it every year. Or you may have Texas, where the taxes are already really high, but there's no income tax. It's the same thing for Wyoming or Florida. Right. But here, we're taxed on our income, and also we're taxed on the real estate. So, you know, the thing is, whenever you have a modified gross lease, and you're just renting out a house, and your taxes go up like 38%, depending on whichever county you're in, that really, I mean, that really punches you in the gut. I mean, and yeah. you you look like the real bad guy when you come in and you raise your rates 38% on top of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's something that has to, it, the thing is, all costs have to be passed through the tenant if they're going to make sense. Otherwise, these owners are going to want to sell and then put their money somewhere else and put it in bonds and then no one's going to really want to rent. Mm -hmm. And So know, what happens in that case? Like, what if everybody just decide tomorrow that's what they want, the direction they want to go? They don't want to deal with all these costs. They don't want to deal with these rising percentages. What happens to the market at that point? You know, I think I, th I think more, more consumers should be buying homes. I think individuals should be buying homes that they live in. Um, you know, some people are like, no, you should never own a house. You should just rent. You know, I, I'm... I, I'm under the belief like, hey, look, it's great to own your own home and have your own mortgage. Um, now, in some markets, I don't think it's worth that. You know, you got to weigh the pros and cons. Is the mortgage rate going to be higher than the rent? Mm -hmm. Denver's one of those markets. It's kind of like San Fran or L.A. It's like you look at the rental rate and let's say your 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 rent's twenty five hundred dollars for a two bedroom. Right. But if I go in and buy that house right now in this current market, it's I mean, going to be significantly lower. Yeah. No, it's actually going to be higher. Really? Yeah. Like I'm I'm paying probably. $3,500 a month with the current interest rate. Now, this is with the, this is with a 20 to 30 year note. Yeah. And that's with amazing credit. And that's what it, like, cause you know, I just bought a house. I'm not going to tell you what my mortgage is, <laughs> but my rent before was $3,700. My mortgage now is more, more than, that. than that. But like it, it like, 
So it penalizes people to own in today's market. It's like it's almost like better off for you to rent. Now that owner that owned that house and they got slapped with that increase in taxes, but they were only charging me thirty seven hundred dollars a month. They're probably they're probably kicking themselves right now because they're probably like, wow, I should have went up to like forty five hundred because that's where now my yields my incomes drop significantly. So so we're gonna see a shift probably over the next 24 months in the rental market here in Colorado or even in throughout the US where other taxes went up where you know they're either going to have to pass it to the tenants or we're going to see like a shift where people are getting out of their rentals because it's just not profitable anymore. And the thing is is because you know not everybody can afford to buy a house. Uh, you know and yeah. particularly and we touched on and this with the financing too that, that that's shifting to where now if you buy a house you're getting it at a significantly higher interest rate than you were 2 or 3 years ago. Yeah, and I think that's like a big thing like in Europe, like a lot of people rent and or like there's families. And if you really go back and you look at like four or five hundred years ago and you got like these families in Europe or in, you know, like in Ireland and different areas and, and these downtowns are owned by companies or they're owned by family like uh, trust. And like and then if you're going to live in the city, you're going to have to rent one of their apartments. Mm. And so you got these families. And I think America, I think is like three or 400 years is going to be probably owned by a small like population of like, or different selection of companies internationally and also local families that are going to own the real estate. And we're mostly going to be in this transient rental market. Now, Gen Zers and millennials, they like to be transit anyway. So mm-hmm. Why buy a house when I can rent and then I can go get another job in another market or I can be a digital nomad and live in, you know, Portugal, you know, or, or do something like that. That's kind of like where we're at right now. So a lot of people don't, I mean, a lot of people don't want to even own a house. So it depends on where you're at. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a very neat topic. I think going into multifamily or like you have, the, you have these new like uh, build for rent communities, you know, where seven years ago, they wouldn't even finance any kind of product like that. Now there's a whole like uh, lending product on built for rent communities and even on how to build that, uh, that product where someone wants to feel like they have a home, raise their family in, but they actually don't own the house. It's crazy, isn't it? It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. And But the neat part about those is like the yards are taken care of. It's almost like you're living like in this uh, neat association style community. Um, and those are popping up. And I think certain counties are restricting them now. Um, I know like um, Jeff Bezos got in that space. A lot of, you know, you know, a lot of investment groups are getting into that space where like, you know, th- that's going to be the next wave where no one really owns anything. And for, from the real estate standpoint. So I think I'm doing the opposite. I'm like, oh, I want to own a house. I'm old school. Right. Tony, do you want to own a house? Absolutely. Okay. But the thing is, they're making it unaffordable. Yeah. 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 Prices. Uh, everybody's, that's been a trend that's kind of happened pretty much since the housing collapse last uh, in, in, in the aughts. And it's kind of progressively just spiraling. I mean, you know, and, and, and we're kind of going off on a tangent going into resi as opposed yeah. <laughs> to commercial but they're, they're kind of symbiotic in that nature and, and it's all tied in back we were you know the topic of the first segment was financing so mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know it kind of they're reflective of each other and so it's kind of good to see that uh, you know the inverse nature of the both yeah of them. so we we're talking about the office culture and yeah. how that's shifting but you know man let's look at the landscape on 
how technology has made us more mobile. Right. You know, digital nomads, we're renting now too. And that's actually changing the way how we even uh, rent, you know, and like, and, and, you know, the thing is like Denver is supposed to be getting, you know, I think, uh, you know, if w the one thing I noticed over the past 12 months being here in uh, Denver is that everything West was at like a, like a stagnation for over the past year with the, the interest rate hikes. Or it was at like a decrease in pricing on the residential front. Um, or we saw less inventory transactions on the commercial front. Now the Southeast, Southeast is still really cheap. Like Atlanta, we're seeing a lot of people from New York, California, LA, because it's the, it's the new movie hub. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, and so like a lot of people are still moving to Atlanta. So our office in Atlanta is really doing great. I don't think they really felt the kind of pressure or like the, the, the quantitative easing really that we we really felt here um out here on the west west coast um and so and i think that plays a big part too and I, but i think we're bouncing back now and i think i'm excited to see what happens in 2024 i never like election year mm. um you know I've, I've yeah been, i've been selling for a while and a lot of investors are kind of like oh my gosh what's going to happen you know who's going to cause every you know whether if you're conservative liberal libertarian you know whoever takes office is going to have their own policies that's going to affect their investments. Right. So some people, they just kind of look at that year as like a soft year to see what happens. Um, and also see what everyone's viewpoint is and what they're going to be shifting. And typically politicians don't like to rock the boat either. And they try to just maintain as much as they can. Uh, that's, they probably maybe not raise the rates right before the election year. It could be one yeah, of those they, things. It might be a year where they just kind of keep everything flat. Or maybe even decrease rates just going into like a harder year. Right. Um, you know, every year, every time we have an election year, it's always like a little bit more of a cooler market. But it is what it is. I think as agents, we kind of, you know, we have to embrace the suck. <laughs> That's and, a good way and, to put it. And really make it, you know, really find how we can make it easier for our investors. And, and like comes right now, just educating sellers and letting them know. You know, if you're an investor and you're listening on this call, like understand that there's still opportunities out there that we're running into. Ask our agents, you know, ask, ask other agents at other firms. But there's deals right now happening and being financed with private like lending. Mm -hmm. If your bank won't lend you something, then or lend you any assets or, or lend you any funds right now, then like there's still ways to get a deal done. I don't see the pricing really going down. There's not a lot of inventory on the market. And really, like everything we've been putting on the market, Tony, have you noticed, has been going under contract. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the market, it's not, it's not like we're reliving 2008. It's really what we're doing is we're just in a, like, like a, a new creative world of like privatized financing. It's the black market of financing <laughs> right now. And, and I, I, like, I was told that black market might not be the best one. Maybe shadow financing shadow would funds. probably be the best bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made it sound well, like we're doing something shady. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. No, but it's not. It's nothing shady about it. I mean, the owner is first position loan, and you know, and if something happens, they get the property back. Yeah. So and it's pretty it's cut and dry. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's really very seller friendly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and typically the buyer is probably going to be the one more exposed. Yeah. 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 No, it's not. Yeah. Excuse me for calling it black. Black market. <laughs> black market. Oh, gosh. Like, man, it's not shady financing. It's, it's, it's not, not like we're it's, it's not, not like we're asking to finance drugs or anything. Right. Yeah. It's not it's not <laughs> high yield financing here. Right. Um, or predatory financing. Actually, no, not at all. If anything, it's actually 
at a lower rate than what the banks. If anything, the bank rates right now are more predatory than. Uh, yeah, and that's that, the, that's that. the most of the appeal that we've. Uh, yeah, and that's usually what sells a lot of people on the seller financing is the fact that what what is, what what are the rates now seven percent. Yeah, and you know you come in at like six point seven five. You're like you. you you're, you're killing. Yeah, you're it. a rock star. Yeah. yeah, and then and then you know no no origination costs unless the seller wants that. But I mean, keep it simple. Yeah, and I think that's what we're trying to do. We're in this market right now. We're trying to keep it simple. We're trying to help sellers make a shift when they're ready, and also help buyers that or maybe look into the Occupy building or or if they're trying to add an investment or two to their portfolio. Um, you know, but uh, but Tony, thank you so much for the call today. I think it's been a great call. It's great. Yeah. This is great. Thank you so much, Brian, and uh, for shedding light on this topic and providing our listeners with very valuable insight. And for our listeners, if you haven't checked out the blog yet, we highly recommend giving it a read on bellstreet.com forward slash blog. Stay up to date every week on what's going on in the commercial real estate space. But that's all the time we have for you today on Chatting on Bell Street. I'm Tony Miranda, and with me as always, Brian Bell. And we'll catch you guys next week. And this is Tony and Brian signing off. See you next week.